Welcome to Unveiled Faces, a Redeemer Presbyterian Church podcast. Please enjoy our future presentation. Last Sunday, which was Palm Sunday, I preached a sermon that addressed the question of why the multitudes turned against Jesus during his Passion Week. On Palm Sunday, the multitudes were singing hosannas and the highest to Jesus. But before the week was over, they were crying, crying out for his crucifixion. And the reason they turned against Jesus is because Jesus was not living up to their expectations. They expected him to be a political messiah. Uh, they expected him to make Israel a sovereign nation by attacking the Romans. But Jesus, what Jesus actually did was attack the Jewish leaders. Uh, this was a huge disappointment, a huge discouragement to the multitude. And so they turned against Jesus because he had not lived up to their expectation. And what we learned from this is that people can correctly identify the person of Jesus while sorely mistaking the work of Jesus. That's what the multitude did. They correctly identified that Jesus is the son of David, but they mistook the work that he came to perform. And last Sunday, I pointed out some of the mistakes that we make uh, about the work of Jesus, the work that we think Jesus ought to be doing in our lives, and how these mistakes can lead to our own discouragement and disappointment with Jesus, and even to the point of causing us to turn ourselves against Jesus, like the multitude did. Well, I thought it, be, it would be appropriate to follow up that sermon with another sermon on the topic of Jesus's work, but this time to focus on one of the most important works Jesus is doing in our lives right now. Hebrews 7.25 tells us that he intercedes for us. He is interceding for us. It says, therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now notice how this verse says that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. And this means that Jesus, when Jesus saves a person, he saves that person to the fullest possible degree. He saves them absolutely and completely. Some English translations have rendered this sentence clause in Hebrews 7.25 as he is able to save forever. Uh, And while it's true that Jesus does indeed save people forever, that's not the best translation. The Greek word is pantales. Uh, this is a compound word which is made up from the Greek word pos, uh, which means all, any, and every, and the Greek word telos, which is described, um, which describes the completion of a goal or attaining a specific end. Uh, you may have heard of the apologetic called the uh, teleological argument. It's an argument from, for the existence of God from the telos or from the design that we observe in nature. The watchmaker argument is one of the best known teleological arguments. If you open up a watch and you observe within it all the intricate gears and springs and levers, 
you'll quickly conclude that there must have been a watchmaker who designed and assembled the watch because this type of order and function doesn't just happen by chance. The word telos, therefore, has the connotation of successfully achieving a goal through deliberate order and intelligent design. That's why it's called a teleological argument. Well, that's the word that's used here in this word Um, that's the Greek word that's used in Hebrews uh, 7.25. So when you take the word pos and combine it with telos, you get a word that describes the deliberate and intelligent achievement of a goal to its fullest extent. That's what Hebrews 7.25 is saying Jesus does when it come, when, when, for those who come to God through him. The goal is their salvation. The end is their salvation. And he achieves that goal to its fullest possible extent. And this is why I say it's not the best translation when an English Bible renders a sentence clause in in Hebrews 7.25 as that he's able to say forever. Forever is a measurement of time. But that's not what this verse is talking about. It's not talking about time. It's talking about extent. It's impressing upon us the truth that when Jesus saves us, he doesn't save us partially, but he saves us to the fullest and most complete extent possible. And this is an important truth for us to know because when we go through those episodes of life where we backslide and when we're, where we fall into patterns of sin, we have the assurance that we cannot sin our way out of our salvation. This is not to say that it's okay to sin and to backslide. We need to repent of our sinning and backsliding, which means we need to confess and forsake our sinning of backsliding. Uh, But when I say that we cannot sin our way out of salvation, I'm merely affirming that our salvation was never established in our own works to begin with. Our salvation was accomplished entirely by the work of Jesus, and it will continue to be accomplished by the work of Jesus. Does it seem strange to you that I would say that our salvation will continue to be accomplished by the work of Jesus? I think every Christian is comfortable with speaking about our salvation having been accomplished by the work of Jesus, speaking of it in the past tense. This is because we all know that Jesus completed his work of atonement when he was crucified upon the cross. When he said, it is finished, it was finished. But when I say that our salvation will continue to be accomplished by Jesus, by the work of Jesus, somebody might question whether I'm implying that the atoning work that Jesus performed on the cross is not complete right now. So let me take a moment to add some necessary and helpful clarification. When we speak about the work that Jesus performs to accomplish our salvation, many people only consider the work Jesus accomplished during his incarnate life upon this earth. For 33 years, uh, his work was to be perfectly obedient to God's will and law. And having successfully performed that work, Jesus earned the righteousness that is acceptable to God the Father. And this is the righteousness that's imputed to those who believe upon Jesus by faith. 
So that was part of, the, of his work, which he has completed successfully. In addition, Jesus also performed the work of atonement at the end of those 33 years. He died a substitutionary death on the cross, making full satisfaction for the penalty of sin for all of God's elect. So not only do those who believe upon Jesus by faith have his perfect righteousness imputed imputed to them, but their sins have been imputed to Jesus. And he successfully served as their substitute when he hung upon the cross and experienced the wrath of God being poured out upon him as the substitute who paid the punishment for our sins. That's the essence of the gospel, brothers and sisters. That is the essence of the gospel. Christ lived for us and he died for us. If you believe that his perfect life and atoning death is what accomplishes the forgiveness of your sins and clothes you with the perfect righteousness that's accepted by God the Father, then you are amongst those that Hebrews 7.25 is describing as having come to God through Jesus Christ. Believing that Jesus lived for you and died for you is the essence of the gospel that saves you to the uttermost. But understand, brothers and sisters, that there's more to the gospel than Jesus having lived for you and died for you. He also rose for you and ever lives to make intercession for you. I think most of you are familiar with the statement Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 15, where he insists that if Jesus had not been raised from the dead, then you are still in your sins. Have you ever wondered why and how Paul can say that? If everything necessary for our salvation was accomplished when Jesus died on the cross, then why does it matter whether he rose from the dead? Had he remained in the grave, wouldn't he have already done everything he needed to do for our salvation? Hadn't he already lived the perfect life of obedience? And hadn't he already paid the penalty for our sins? And while we really like the idea that he's raised and can continue to live, was that absolutely necessary? What if he wasn't raised? Then does that mean that that, uh, that you would still be in your sins, as Paul says? And if so, how? Why? When Christ lived and died for you. Why did he need to be resurrected in order for your sins to be forgiven? Psalm 4, verse 25, or I'm sorry, Romans 4, verse 25, gives us the answer to that question. Romans 4, 25 says that Jesus was delivered up because of our offenses, referring to his crucifixion, and was raised because of our justification, referring to his resurrection. He was delivered up because of our offenses and raised because of our justification. And we understand this to be teaching us that the resurrection was God the Father's formal approval that the redemption Jesus paid on the cross was accepted by him. Without the resurrection, there's no formal approval that God the Father received Jesus' atonement and accepted it as complete. If you think back to the details of the crucifixion, when Jesus died, there was no conclusive demonstration that God had accepted the sacrifice Jesus made. The Father's voice did not come out of heaven as 
it had done, as he had done on previous occasions, to affirm his approval of what Jesus had just done. There were some notable events that happened at the death of Jesus. The earth shook, the temple veil was ripped in two, graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and they were seen walking around Jerusalem. But none of these things are an irrefutable declaration that God had accepted the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus. Earthquakes happened on other occasions as well. The, the ripping of the temple veil might have been understood as God's abandonment of the temple. And all those saints who were raised from the dead, they all died again. The fact that death was still stinging them leaves room for doubting whether the death of Christ truly accomplished the death of death. But all such doubts were put to rest when Jesus' glorified body was raised from the dead because his resurrection is the formal demonstration that God had accepted Jesus' sacrifice on the cross as the perfect sacrifice for the sins of all the elect. So yes, the resurrection is an essential part of the gospel as well. If Jesus had not been raised from the dead, then this would indicate that his atoning sacrifice was not accepted by God and that we would still be in our sins. Now, one of the reasons Christians get confused about the work of Jesus in salvation is because we don't always give proper consideration to the full scope of what that word salvation means. We have a tendency to think of salvation only in terms of the sinner's justification. So when we read the word saved in the Bible, we interpret this as a reference to that moment when a sinner is declared to be righteous by God. And this works in a lot of cases because the Bible often does use the word saved to refer to justification. For example, to give you just one example, when the immoral woman washed Jesus' feet with her hair and her tears and she anointed his feet with a fragrant oil, Jesus said to her, your faith has saved you. Right? That's how he responded to you. Your faith has saved you. And when Jesus used the word saved, he was speaking about her justification. He was telling the woman that she has been declared righteous in the holy courtroom of God because of her faith in Jesus. But don't forget that salvation also includes sanctification and glorification. Sometimes when the Bible speaks of salvation, it's not referring to justification at all, but it's referring to sanctification or glorification. Take 1 Corinthians 1.18 as an example. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. To say that believers are being saved is referring to our sanctification. Every Christian who's alive on this earth is being sanctified by the Lord. But sanctification is a process that will continue all the days of our earthly walk. So while we are in the process of being sanctified, the Bible says that we are being saved. To interpret this as a reference to justification will lead to a lot of confusion. Uh, but to understand that it's referring to our sanctification reminds us that there is a sense in which we can say our salvation is still being accomplished. 
Or consider how the word saved is used in Romans 5.10. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. We shall be saved by his life. Now this is talking about people who are already reconciled to God through the death of his son. And yet it says of these reconciled people that we shall be saved by his life. And the future tense of this verb indicates that there's something about our salvation that has not been attained yet. And the context makes it clear that it's referring to our glorification. It's referring to the day described in Philippians 3.21 when Christ returns to resurrect our lowly bodies from the grave and to transform them to be conformed to the, his glorious body, to, that we ourselves will receive our glorified bodies. So in showing that the Bible speaks of salvation in the past, present, and future tenses, I'm reminding us that salvation can be referred to only as justification. The Bible sometimes just uses the word saved or salvation to refer to justification, sometimes only to sanctification, sometimes only to glorification, and sometimes to, to all the above. And so turning our attention back to Hebrews 7.25, we need to ask ourselves, how is the term saved being used in this verse? When it says that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, is it referring to justification, sanctification, glorification, or all the above? I submit to you that it's referring to all the above. It's saying that if you come to, Jesus, come to God through Jesus Christ, then Jesus has already justified you to the uttermost. He is presently sanctifying you to the uttermost, and he will glorify you to the uttermost at his second coming. But I also think that this verse is placing an emphasis on the work Jesus is doing now the present work of sanctification that he is doing in our lives right now. Because it goes on to say, since he always lives to make intercession for you. And the Greek verb for make intercession is in the present tense. So it's describing the work that Jesus is doing right now for all of those who have come to God through him. In other words, this is part of the work that Jesus is doing right now to save you to the uttermost, this work of intercession. On this Easter morning, as we are especially mindful that Jesus arose a victor from the dark domain and he lives forever with his saints to reign, we are being encouraged to remember that Jesus is not just passively sitting in heaven waiting for you to die so that you can go to be where he is. No, Jesus is actively working to save you to the uttermost right now. He has already completed to the uttermost the work of atonement that's necessary for your justification. He completed that nearly 2,000 years ago. Now, Jesus is actively engaged in the work of your sanctification, and he's doing that by interceding for you at the heavenly throne of grace. Now, when our sermon texts and other scripture passages say that Jesus is interceding for us, let's make sure we understand what this means as well as what it does not mean. It does not mean that God the Father is constantly becoming angry with us and wants to punish us 
every time we sin, but Jesus is there continually placating him and calming him down so that he doesn't carry through on what he really wants to do. That's not consistent with the Bible's teaching on justification. The Bible teaches that when God declares a sinner to be righteous, that's a done deal. Jesus' perfect righteousness is imputed to the sinner at the moment of his justification, and there is nothing that will ever change that person's status in the eyes of God. That person is holy in the eyes of God, and nothing will change that. So when a Christian sins, that doesn't change our status with God, which means Jesus' intercession does not take the form of changing the Father's mind about us. Jesus does not need to continually appease the Father because of our continued sin. He doesn't need to continually turn uh, turn the Father's wrath away from us, nor does he need to keep reminding the Father that he has already declared us to be righteous. Rather, Jesus' intercession is about changing us. It's not about changing God, it's about changing us. It's how we receive the sanctifying grace that strengthens us, protects us, preserves us, and causes us to persevere in our faith. Let me show you what I mean from the scriptures. The intercession that Hebrews 7.25 is speaking about is what Jesus is performing in heaven right now. But we have a couple examples in the scriptures where Jesus interceded for people while he was still walking on this earth. And this is called his pre-resurrection intercession. And one of his best known pre-resurrection intercessions has to do with the disciple Peter. Right after Jesus and his disciples had celebrated the Passover meal in the upper, upper room, a dispute developed among the disciples about who should be considered the greatest. And Jesus put an end to that dispute by explaining that Christians should not be focused on exercising power and authority over other people, but their focus, our focus should be on humility. True greatness, according to Christ, is manifest in humble servanthood. Then he went on, Jesus went on, to warn his disciples that they're about to experience some very difficult challenges. All four of the gospel writers record this warning from Jesus, but some include details that the others don't, and so we get the best understanding of what transpired by reading from multiple gospels. And what Matthew writes in chapter 26, uh, beginning in verse 31, is, then Jesus said to them, the disciples, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Uh, Now Jesus knew that he was about to be falsely accused, arrested, tried, scourged, beaten, crucified. And so being the good shepherd that he is, he, he is preparing his disciples for the difficulties that they are soon going to experience. And Peter, being confident in himself, responds in prideful arrogance. Continuing in Matthew 26, Peter answered and said to him, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you that this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, 
I will not deny you. Now, ironically, the disciples had just been arguing about which of them is the greatest, and Jesus had corrected them, explaining that greatness is achieved by humility. That instruction obviously didn't sink in for Peter yet because he just tried to elevate himself above all the other disciples when he said, even if all the other disciples are made to stumble, I, I will never be made to stumble. It's another form of I'm greater than them. But even more concerning is that in his pride and self-confidence, Peter tried to correct Jesus. He said, no, Jesus, you're wrong. I'm not going to stumble tonight. I'm so committed to you that I'm willing to die before I would ever deny you. Luke provides a little more detail about this part of the conversation. And this is where we see Jesus uh, in his faithful and compassionate pre-resurrection intercession for Peter. When Peter said that he he was sure that he would not stumble, Luke tells us that Jesus explained to Peter some of the spiritual dynamics that were going on, spiritual dynamics that Peter had absolutely no awareness of. Luke 22, beginning at verse 31. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Jesus is not only providing Peter with a glimpse of what's happening in the unseen realms of spiritual warfare, but he's giving us that same glimpse as well. Brothers and sisters, we need to bear in mind the truth that there are spiritual powers of darkness and spiritual hosts of wickedness that are constantly waging war against you and me, the followers of Christ. And for reasons that we don't fully understand, God does not forbid these evil forces from assailing us. What the scriptures tell us is that the Lord providentially providentially works in every situation for the good of his people and the glory of his name. So he establishes limits and then he permits our enemy to assail us afflict us within those limits. And we know very well that this is what God did with Job. And we also learn from reading the the complete scriptures that this is what he does with all of his children. In Peter's case, God permitted Satan to afflict Peter. And despite Peter's self-confident assertion that he would not deny the Lord, Peter stumbled, he failed. He failed to withstand the temptations that Satan had set before him. He did indeed deny Jesus three times. And as Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before the fall. In reading of Peter's denial, however, don't dismiss and don't miss the intercession of Jesus in all of this. We can so easily get caught up on the whole thing about Satan and the whole thing about Peter, but let's not miss the whole thing about Jesus. Don't miss the fact that Jesus knew Peter was going to stumble before it ever happened. He didn't just know that Satan was going to afflict Peter, but he also knew how Peter would respond 
to that affliction. Jesus knew that Peter was going to stumble. And so what did Jesus do with this knowledge? He prayed for Peter. And notice what he prayed. He didn't pray what you and I would probably be inclined to pray, that Satan would be kept away from Peter so that Peter wouldn't have to deal with the affliction. Rather, Jesus prayed that Peter's faith would not fail. This is essentially the same thing that Jesus prayed for his disciples in John 17. John 17 is another one of those well-known passages where we see an explicit example of Jesus' pre-resurrection intercession. And as he's praying for all the people that the Father has elected unto salvation and given to Christ, uh, he prays in verse 15, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. Now understand that when Jesus prays that the Father will, will keep them from the evil one, he's not asking that Christians be isolated and insulated from all the trials and afflictions of our adversary, but that the Father will protect and preserve us from abandoning our faith. Jesus is praying that the Father will protect and preserve us from departing from him, departing from Christ, and falling into the possession of Satan. Notice how possession is part of the request that Satan made concerning Peter. And going back to Luke 22, verse 31, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you. Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. So Satan wasn't just requesting permission from God to wreak havoc on Peter. He was asking for possession of Peter. Satan wanted God to release his grip on Peter so that Satan could possess him and destroy him. So Jesus interceded for Peter. He prayed to God the Father that Peter's faith would not fail, which is just another way of saying that Jesus prayed to the Father that he would keep Peter from the evil one, from possession of the evil one. And Jesus knows that the Father will keep Peter, Peter's faith from failing. So he goes on to tell Peter that after he stumbles, after he denies Jesus three times, he will return to Christ. Peter will not stumble and fall into the possession of Satan, but he will stumble and return to Christ. And when he does return, his job will be to strengthen his brethren, Jesus goes on to tell him. Listen again to Luke 22, verse 32. Jesus says to Peter, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. All of this came true. Peter stumbled. He denied the Lord three times before the rooster crowed. And in his shame and sorrow, he decided to leave the ministry work that he had been doing with Christ and returned to fishing. But Jesus pursued Peter. He pursued him all the way to his fishing boat where Jesus tenderly restored Peter to the work of feeding his sheep. And if you've ever read 1 Peter, then you know that this is a letter that is a tremendous encouragement to believers who are undergoing trials and difficulties. Peter did indeed strengthen his brethren who need a strengthening. And he continues to strengthen believers today through his writing and his example. 
But the strength is not in Peter. It's in our Lord Jesus Christ, who labors so faithfully in his intercession. We, like Peter, can be self-confident in our ability to withstand our adversary. And we, like Peter, stumble in our Christian walk. But our faith will never fail, brothers and sisters. Our faith will never fail. And we will never fall from the grace of God into the possession of Satan because Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. He entreats the Father to give his sustaining grace to us. And the Father always does what the Son asks because he loves us. The Father loves us. The Father wants to bless us because he loves us. But equally encouraging is the fact that the Father loves his Son and is always in agreement with his Son. So if the Son is interceding for us, then we can know with certainty that the Father is happy to do whatever his Son asks him to do because the Father loves his Son. But understand who the recipients of Jesus' intercession are. He does not save to the uttermost everybody in the world, but only those who come to God through him. Listen again to our sermon text from Hebrews 7.25. Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, through Jesus, since he always lives to make intercession for them, the ones who have come to God through him. So brothers and sisters, understand very clearly that your faith will never fail and you will never fall out of the grace of God into the possession of Satan if you have come to God through Jesus Christ. This is not because you have the resolve to remain faithful to Jesus, but because Jesus has a resolve to remain faithful to you. He is able to save to the uttermost. He has saved you to the uttermost. He will save you to the uttermost. And he is, uh, and, and he is saving you to the uttermost as he ever lives to make intercession for you. As I read from Romans 8, beginning at verse 31, listen to the Apostle Paul describe the security that we have in Jesus Christ. And listen closely as he describes the benefits that we receive through the intercession of Jesus. What then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities nor powers, nor things present nor things to come, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now why 
is Paul so persuaded that nothing can separate Christians from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord? Because Jesus saves to the uttermost, and he ever lives to make intercession for those who come to God through him. Why then should you, who have come to God through him, be persuaded that nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus your Lord? Because Jesus saves to the uttermost. And he ever lives to make intercession for you. Hallelujah. All glory be to God the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost. Let's pray. This has been a presentation of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. For more resources and information, please stop by our website at visitredeemer.org. All material here within, unless otherwise noted, copyright Redeemer Presbyterian Church, Elk Grove, California. Music furnished by Nathan Clark George, available at nathanclarkgeorge.com.